0: TechSounds presents EduTrends. Hi, Eric. Uh, I'm very glad to have you here in Monterey around the International Conference of Educational Innovation. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Second time in Monterey.
0: Second time in Monterey. Yes. yes. I think you've been here also by video conference several times. Oh, that's right. I remember as the first right. time I met you. Second time in. The real world and maybe virtually a few more times. A few more times, <laughs> great. So uh, this series of podcasts are around education, innovation. And as you know, not only technology. Not, technology doesn't define uh, what uh, education innovation is. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh,
1: technology is just a tool. And the tool by itself doesn't do anything. So to me, it's always pedagogy first. I love technology you can find all the latest gadgets in my in my pockets, but um, I know that technology can be implemented in ways that don't, you know, do anything innovative. In fact, I would argue that most uses of technology in education are simply old wine into new bottles,
0: doing an old thing in a new way. Exactly, and some of them are. Like selling mirrors, if I may say, they, they try to sell you something that is flashy, but not necessarily that is meaty, that has really content inside. And I believe that uh, technology is uh, enable process or automatize process. And if the process is wrong, it only does it uh, a wrong a thing that is wrongly made, but more more quickly and more effectively, which doesn't lead to a better learning in the case of. Uh, Absolutely. If you simply use technology to do
1: something you could already do without the technology, then why would students learn any better? Yes, it may help with efficiency, as you point out, but uh, it's not really an innovation. It's an innovation when the technology permits you to do
0: something you could not do before. Exactly. Very interesting. So you're a physics professor. How did you start it to be uh, in this, in the education field uh
1: well maybe i should tell you a little bit about myself i uh, i was educated in europe i came from a a family of I my mean, two 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 parents who were both teaching at the university my father was a physicist my mother was an art historian and um i ended up in physics I was always torn between art and science, but I ended up in science. And as I um, approached my PhD, I decided that I was going to do something very different from my parents. I was never, ever going to be a professor. I was going to do something useful in my life. (laughs) And uh, I lined up a job in industry at Philips in Eindhoven. And, um, and then my father sort of intercepted <laughs> me. He, he, he saw when I received the letter offering me a job in industry, and he said, why don't you go for one year to, um, to the U.S. to do a postdoc? And I'd never been in the U.S., so I thought, why not? Um, so I called Phillips. I said, it's okay if I postpone my job for a year. And they said, sure, it's a great idea to do a postdoc and learn more about lasers because I was going to work in optics. So I had nothing to lose. I wrote to Harvard, MIT, Stanford, and Berkeley. I never heard from Stanford and Berkeley, but I got two job offers, one from Harvard, one from MIT. I um, accepted the job at Harvard. And what can I tell you? It's been a very long year.
0: Well, Philips is still waiting.
1: Maybe they're still waiting. I don't know. I call, after the second year, I called them to ask, can I? No, after the first year, I said, can I add a second year to it? And they said, sure. After that, I didn't call anymore. So after two years, uh, Harvard offered me an assistant professorship. And all of a sudden, I found myself in front of a classroom. And I was asked to teach a class that none of my colleagues wanted to teach. Physics for pre-medical students and engineering students. These were not students who took physics because they wanted to learn it. They took physics because they had to take the course. I'd never taught. In those days, you didn't get any training whatsoever. So I simply mimicked the people who had taught me, and I lectured. And what happened was that the students actually really liked my lectures. And I thought that I was a really, really good lecturer. And that went on for many years because, you know, if you do a good job lecturing and you teach a course that your colleagues don't really want to teach, the next year they ask you to teach the same course again. So year after year, I was asked to teach that same course. That went on for about six years. And then I came across a series of articles that claimed that students don't learn much physics in introductory physics courses, regardless of how, quote-unquote, good the professor is. I thought, that can't be true. Not, you know, my students. Not (laughs) Masur. Not Masur, not Harvard (laughs) students. Now, the way that the author who had written that article had gone to the conclusion was by asking students very basic questions about physics, word-based questions, conceptual questions about the simplest concept in physics, force, or maybe not the simplest, but the most basic one. Um, So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give these questions to my students, not because I don't believe they learn anything, no, to show that in my class, students actually do learn physics. Well, that was the most eye-opening moment I ever had in my lo- in life because within a few minutes, one student raised her hand and she asked me, Professor Mazur, how should I answer these questions? According to what you taught us or according to the way I usually think about these things? And I went, what? What? What is she actually asking? I didn't even understand the question. And by the time, you know, the test had been completed and I saw the results, it was clear that I had a major problem in my class. Yes, the students were enjoying my lectures. And yes, they were able to do textbook problems. But they had absolutely no clue about things like the concept of force. They were simply memorizing material, regurgitating it on the exam, and solving problems by rote procedures without really understanding the underlying concepts. So I could do two things then. One was to say, okay, enough of teaching undergraduates, I'm going to teach graduate students. Or, you know, I could basically decide I just have stupid students, but that's kind of hard to claim at a place like Harvard. So eventually, I realized that it was neither the students um, you know, nor the test, because I, at some point, I even suspected that the test might be wrong. It was really my teaching, my teaching, which was not the most. It was maybe engaging by lecture standards, but it was not really getting any learning done, because learning is not a spectator sport. I mean, if you ask yourself, how did I become good at whatever I'm good at now? Whether you're a piano player, or a researcher, or a doctor, or a surgeon, you learn it by doing. Or a soccer player, exactly. You learn by doing, not by sitting in front of a TV watching DVDs of soccer players, <laughs> or by listening to concert pianists play the piano. You've got to play yourself. Likewise, you don't learn physics by listening to a professor talk about physics and solve problems on the board for you. You have to do it. So that got me uh, away from lecturing because all of a sudden I realized the thing that I'm really doing in my classroom is simply reading the textbook to the students. In fact, there's a good reason that the lecture is called the lecture. It comes from the Latin verb to read. Um, so I said, you know what? We have books. We have computers. We were just starting at that time having the internet. Why am I reading my notes to some you know, degree for my students? They should really be responsible for the transfer of information. And then maybe that in class we can do something more engaging. And the more engaging thing I came up with was to teach by questioning rather than by telling. That's how peer instruction was born in 1991. In 1990 was when I gave that test and I discovered that I was really not the great teacher I thought I was. And in 1991, I flipped my classroom completely. I didn't call it flipped. I called it inverting the sequence. Right, Because if you ask yourself, what is education really? Well, in most classrooms, the emphasis is on information transfer. But education is not just information transfer, because if it were just information transfer, then we might as well videotape all classes, put them online, and close all our universities. We know that is not going to happen. So step one is perhaps the information transfer, but there's a much more important step two, which is making sense of that information. And that's what was not happening in my classroom. So by throwing the information transfer out, I freed up time in class to help students make sense. And the best way to do that was to ask them questions and confront them with their own misunderstandings. So that's that's how I got involved. I knew very little about uh, education. Incidentally, this is really interesting, I think, and it's not on my CV, and very few people know it. When I was a PhD student, my PhD advisor insisted that I get a teaching certificate. His wife was a high school teacher, biology high school teacher, and he wanted to be sure that there was a safety net. If there was no job in industry or in academia... You can teach. You can teach. So for one year, I had to take courses on pedagogy, and I had to teach in the high school, and uh, first observe, and then, and then teach myself in order to get that teaching certificate. And I remember sitting in <laughs> classes <laughs> talking about Piaget, Vygotsky, the zone of proximal development. Development. And, you know, and I mean, I knew I was never going to teach. I was going to go into industry. So I, I did it simply because my advisor demanded it. But literally the information went in one ear, the other. Besides the way this was all done was purely by lecture. In fact, in a sense, the way it was taught contradicted the content content, itself. Um, So I had been exposed to ideas about education, but it literally just traversed my my brain from one side to the other, in one ear, out the other ear. And by the time I started teaching at Harvard, I had totally forgotten about it, totally, completely forgotten about it. Um, which shows the disconnect we have in the world between educating teachers and the actual practice of teaching. We don't show by example. We don't show by example. We don't teach by doing. We teach by telling.
0: So peer um, learning is the way that you call your inverted... Peer instruction, Peer instruction yes. is uh, this inverted methodology.
1: Yeah, so so maybe I can tell you a little bit how that, what the genesis of that was. See, after I gave that test to my, my students, not only was I shocked by the results, my students were also shocked by the results. They could not believe how poorly they'd done. And... Um, because it was two weeks before the final exam, they wanted me to explain to them where they had gone wrong. So I booked a classroom at night, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And I went through every single question. I remember coming to a question which, in my mind, was totally obvious. In fact, as I was thinking, how am I going to explain to my students the answer, I thought... That's just the way it is. There's nothing to explain about it. That's how clear it was in my my mind. So I remember making a drawing on the board and then saying, you know, this was comparing two forces in a direction pair. I remember turning around and saying, by Newton's third law, these two forces are equal. To me, there was nothing more to explain about it. And I had about 100 and no, I had about 250 students in my class that year. I remember turning around was the drawing behind me, looking at the students and seeing from their faces that they were confused. So, but I could not imagine what was confusing about it. So I said, is there a question? They were so confused, they could not
0: articulate. They didn't know what the problem
1: was. They they couldn't bring it in words. You you know, when you're really confused about something, it's hard to articulate that confusion. So, you know, I thought, well, maybe they're confused with that the forces are the same, but the effect is different. So anyway, so I raised the board. I started over. And in the next eight or so minutes, I gave what I thought was the most brilliant explanation possible, right? So the whole board was covered with drawings and equations, and it was all there, how, you know, the forces could be the same, but the effects would be different. And I turned around, you know, thinking... This is just great. You know, they looked even more confused. <laughs> and and I had no idea what to do. I was standing there thinking, you know, how can this be? And and they they were asking questions but I didn't even understand what 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 they were asking me, right? Because their vocabulary was different from mine. So anyway, so so I didn't know what to do, but I knew one thing. I knew that half the students had actually given the right answer on the test. So in a moment of despair, I said to them, why don't you just discuss it with each other? And what happened was amazing. Complete, utter chaos. Okay, I mean, everybody started talking. They forgot about me in front of the classroom. And what was even more surprised was that within two minutes, they figured it out. You could actually see the students go, talk, and then go, oh, oh, yeah. And for a moment, that surprised me. I thought, how can that be? I, the expert, have tried it in two different ways for about 10 minutes, unsuccessfully to explain to them. And they just talk for two minutes, and they get it? But let's imagine that you and I are sitting next to each other. We're we're students, right? You have the right answer because you understand it. And I have the wrong answer because I do not understand it. We talk to each other. On average, you are more likely to convince me than the other way around, simply because you have the right way of thinking. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is this. You as a student, are more likely to convince me as a student because Professor Mazur in front of the class has learned it such a long time ago. To him, it's so incredibly clear. That does he does not remember how it's to be confused. Exactly, right? It's something my colleague, Steven Pinker, calls the curse of knowledge. You tend to think that the more of an expert you are, the better positioned you are to teach it false. Mm -hmm. The better you know it, the more likely it is that you've forgotten what the struggles are of a beginning learner, Mm -hmm. even if you had those struggles yourself way back when. And, you know, to some degree, we know that, right? We know that when we go to a colloquium or a seminar in our own discipline and we listen, yes, we can get excited, but then if we're asked to reproduce whatever was said, we can't. We also know that often people who are in age closer to the people who are being taught are more effective at teaching than the older professor. Graduate students who teach the discussion section are often closer to the students and therefore better able to explain it. So why not tap the students themselves? And that's, so that's how the idea of peer instruction was, uh, was, was born, right? so I thought, When I saw that interaction, I saw it. Wow, that's what I should do. Now, in order, to, so the cycle, let me describe it. Mm-hmm. So I come into class. I talk maybe a few minutes. I ask a question. I give them one minute to think about that. I have them vote. First, we simply used hands on the chest with fingers indicating the choice. After that came the clicker, which was developed in part of my classroom. And then people adopted the clicker without thinking about the pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but forget about it, about the technology. Students have to commit to an answer. They could do it on paper. And after they've committed, they have to find a neighbor with a different answer. So I turn to you, ask you, what answer did you have? Oh, I had the same answer. So thank you. And I turn... To the other neighbor, and I try to find a person around me who has a different answer. Mm-hmm. We start to argue, and chances are that one of us will go, "Oh yes, you're right," and change our our, uh, our mind. Typically, if initially between thirty and seventy percent have the desired answer, then after a few minutes of discussion, that thirty to seventy percent can increase to close to one hundred percent. And there are many students who would have gone, oh, yes. And then, you know, I wrap up with a discussion and I start the next cycle and then the next cycle and so on until class time is up.
0: Interesting. So that, that means that the students have to come from uh, having learned what is used to be taught in the classroom. Uh, what kind of resources do you use for that part that happens outside of the classroom previously to the station? Yes,
1: yes. I mean, you, you, the, I, I love the way you phrase it, that, you know, they have to come to class sort of at the same level as that they left the class in a, in a traditional lecture. That's right. So in a sense, you have to find a way to deliver the lecture outside the classroom. My first instinct was, let's have them watch video. I'd already recorded my classes. And believe it or not, in 1990, I saw Marc Andreessen demonstrate mosaic at Harvard, the predecessor of Netscape which is now Firefox, I guess. And I went, wow, this is going to change the world. And I had my first website before airlines had websites. Um, and I had actually my lectures online. So I thought, why not just have the students watch the lecture? But I very quickly realized that the lecture is just not very effective and it doesn't matter whether it's in person or on video. Right? In a sense... A lecture does not give the audience time to think. In a sense, the brains of the students are held captive by the speaker in front of the class. Imagine imagine you're sitting in a classroom, listening to a professor teach you something, or lecture about something rather than teach you something. And some point your brain goes, wait a minute, does this make sense? I thought that when blah, 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 this happened. What happens then is your brain goes on its own, you know, it's sort of wandering around. And unfortunately, our brains are not good at multitasking. We cannot listen and think at the same time. The professor doesn't stop, he continues to talk, right? So you tell yourself, well, I better not think because I'm going to lose whatever's coming in. Right? The, the only way would be to raise your hand as a student and say, professor, can you please be quiet for five minutes? I need to think, <laughs> right? We know that that doesn't happen. Right? Now with video, you could in principle pause the video and think. Right. You have control of the you have media. control. But you know what students do? If you look at the edX data, I don't know if you've ever looked. Is, is Tech de Monterey doing mm, it? We're
0: part of edX. You're part of edX,
1: just like Harvard. Right? Now, I've looked at the data. It's really interesting. The students put the playback speed often between 1.5 and 2.0. So it goes even faster. There's even less time to think. And you find that in the beginning, they watch the entire 20 minutes or however many minutes it is. But then very quickly, they find that the way they're held accountable can be gamed. You don't even need to watch. Just fast forward to the questions, Google the answer to the questions, to the questions. I've done my pre-class assignment. So unfortunately, that doesn't work. So I, for many years, I struggled. I... Um, I thought then, you know, reading is much better because if, if you read something, you're in control of the speed, right? Mm-hmm. If you read and your mind wanders, you stop reading automatically. So, so reading is better, but how do you get, stimulate students to read them in, in a meaningful way? So I came across a technique called just-in-time teaching, which I used for many years. It essentially it offers the students a carrot and a stick, It's only really in the last five years that I've been able to nail this problem. Uh, And the way I've nailed it is actually so obvious in retrospect. You see, I'd worked hard on making the classroom a social interaction with students talking to each other and helping each other. Mm -hmm. I'd never thought about making the out-of-class component a social interaction. I mean, again, if you have a student reading a book... It's an isolated, lonely experience, right? You're reading the book alone. Mm-hmm. What if we could somehow use technology to bring students together? So we developed a, a social learning platform called Perusal. Where we now have agreements with most um, uh, publishers. In fact, I think nearly all publishers that people have requested. And... Um, and what happens is that students read the textbook or the notes or whatever the instructor makes available. And if they have a question, they can highlight the part where they have a question and open a chat window and pull other people in. It can you, it's, it's actually linked to social media like Twitter, Facebook, or, or whatever the students happen to use. And, and then the student uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to analyze students' engagement, give feedback to the instructor on the students' engagement on the platform, but also uses um, nudging to get students to participate in this reading. And using that platform, I found that I, for the first time, I can now really design new courses where, provided I have a good text, I can completely eliminate the lecture, completely. Um, but it was was not easy, even though in retrospect I think it's kind of obvious. Yes,
0: you have to make it social, because learning is a social experience. So the students are prepared, now they are using perusal, perusal. and then social interaction and peer instruction. Social interaction and perusal, and then in the classroom they solve problems and they use... Also, this peer instruction method with social interaction inside the classroom?
1: Yes, but it's even better than that. Okay, Because you see, perusal doesn't answer all the questions. Mm -hmm. Students will answer some of the questions, but there are many points of confusion that are remaining. Mm -hmm. So we developed a machine learning algorithm where the instructor can press on one button and get what is called a confusion report. It's essentially a report that has the three or four or the teacher. Topics of confusion, yes. So it will say, you know, here's topic one that the students were confused about. And it will show f- three, you know, example questions that the students have asked about that subject. So now what I do is I look at the confusion report before I go to class. I look at what the main topics of confusion are. And then I bounce, I take those questions... And I bounce them back at the students. I say, one of you asked the following question yesterday night. Um, It's a good question. Let's think about it. And then we read the question. And students have to think about it. They have to come up with an answer. They have to discuss it in the classroom. Some will go, oh. Some will not go, oh. But it it basically connects the in-class experience with the out-of-class experience.
0: It's like the, the, the tool is giving you a ag- diagnostic, an X-ray of uh, the most important problems uh, I, that they have for learning.
1: I like X-ray. I, I call it a window into the brains of my students. Okay.
0: Right. Yeah. And, uh, so my, my next uh, comment will be the big moment of evaluation. So when it happens in peer instruction, how it happens. You mean how it happens with the students? Yes, yes.
1: Well, in a sense, the same way any uh, discovery goes, right? Uh, so we have actually one classroom where we have, we had. We, we, now we're not doing it because these things are a little bit more sensitive. In this. Uh, in the current culture that we're in, but I had a a classroom where between the seats there were microphones and we had cameras in front that looked at every single interaction in a 150-student interactive peer instruction classroom. So we could record the conversations and we could also look at the body language because it turns out when people have an aha moment, you can actually see that in the video even without audio. You can turn the audio off and you just see people go, oh, you, you actually see it, right? So you can, you can look in the video for aha moments and then you can listen to the audio to see what it is. Lots of interesting things. One, language is very strongly related to understanding. You see that students start talking and in the beginning, it's fragmented sentences. Yes, but I thought that, uh, and then another says, "Wait, didn't uh, the professor say that there, there are fragments of sentences that are that don't get completed?" And then at one point, one student says. But I remember that something, blah, blah, blah. And then the, uh, two other students go, oh, yes. And also snap, you know, the understanding snaps in place. And now the sentences become complete rather than little fragments of, uh, of sentences. I, I thought that it would be really interesting to bring in a linguist or a psychologist and and to try to analyze that better. One thing that we find is sometimes you can have three students talking to each other every of the three students has wrong answer, but they talk to each other for a few minutes. Student A pokes holes in student B's answer and reasoning. Student B pokes holes in student C's answer and reasoning. Student C pokes holes in A, so they discover that they must all be wrong and somehow they get the right answer. So it's, it's a very interesting process. I, I can't say that I completely understand it, but in a sense it's, it's maybe it's maybe related to what is called the illicit confront resolve cycle, right? They get confronted with their misunderstanding. You elicit a response. You say A, I say B, We talk to each other, I'm pretty sure about my B, you're pretty sure about your A, but we cannot both be right. So either you're wrong or I'm wrong, right? So because you have A and not B like me, I think, well, maybe Pepe is right and I'm wrong. And you think maybe Eric is right and I'm wrong. And we start to dig a little bit deeper. Why do you have A and why do I have B? And then at some point, one of us goes, oh yeah, I I think you're right. And, you know, flips and goes in the other direction. Um, so, 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 so what I meant by illicit, you force people to come up with an answer. You confront them with an inconsistency. Because I always tell my students, you have to find somebody who's a different answer. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to somebody who has the same answer. Talk to somebody who has a different answer. Right? And, then, and then the two students know one of them must be wrong. So they're they're incentivized to try to resolve the discrepancy. I think that's the key of it. But there's also something more deep, and that is the emotional engagement. The only way to really do that is to demonstrate it, um, which we can't do really in a podcast. Um, but, But what you find is that The emotional engagement that students have once they've, you know, taken the step to formulate an answer, okay, I mean, the professor asks a question, I think about it, I I pick an answer, I don't have to tell the whole class the answer, so it's much less high pressure than, than when the professor says, you, Eric, what is the answer to this question? No, I come up with the answer and it's sort of a private answer, right? And then I talk to you about that question. After that, I am dying to know what the right answer is. In in, in some sense, the mind is wired to resolve, you know, surprises and things that that are, you know, not according to what we usually think. And that's what learning really is about. I once read an an article about... um, Uh, I think it was a psychology article about, you know, uh, they'd done an experiment with putting a chair in the middle of a forest and, you know, exposed people to that image of a chair in the middle of a forest. And when people see a chair in the middle of a forest, they immediately start thinking, why? You know, what could this be? What is the purpose of this chair? Is there a danger? I think we're, we're naturally wired to resolve questions like that because it's part of survival.
0: It becomes like a mystery that you want to solve.
1: It becomes uh, like a mystery that you want to solve, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You're engaged. Right. Which is the key to education.
0: So, uh, in, um, in this case, I imagine that uh, when you evaluate your students, evaluation has to be not like textbook evaluation. It has to be Frame in a different way, otherwise, it will have no sense. That you, so that you, you, you how do you evaluate your students? Don't get me started on assessment because now there's a whole other
1: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a, a talk called Assessment, the Silent Killer of Learning. Okay. Interesting. Uh, because I, after, after. Implementing peer instruction, I realized, yes, I changed the approach to teaching, but from the student point of view, the really important part is the assessment, the examination, Mm right? Exactly. And if I really want my students to learn, then I should adjust the assessment so that it promotes learning and is, in fact, a learning opportunity, not a punishment which, unfortunately, most assessment is. I mean, if you, if you ask a student, how do, you, how do you think about exams? I mean, they see it as a stressful event. And um, stressful events are not the best way to learn. So I, 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 I think that not only do we need to change our approaches to teaching, we must also change our approaches to assessment. Think about it. Let me just give one one thing because we really could talk about this a long time. Happy to do another podcast some other time about <laughs> assessment. But think about this. Education is completely focused on the individual. Students come to our universities. Your students at the tech, my students at hybrid. They go to classes. In many classes, they're sitting next to other students. But You know, the classes are not interactive. Well, I think the tech is probably doing better than many other institutions. But certainly in my institution, many, many classes are still lecture-based classes. So, yes, they're sitting next to other students, but they're not talking to the other students. So it's alone. They go home. They study alone. They go to an exam. They're separated from each other. They're not allowed to talk to each other. They're not allowed to look up any information. They are not allowed to look anything on the internet or nothing. They just have a pen and a piece of paper. And that's how we examine them. And then we give them a a grade and a degree and we send them to society. And what happens, they're of course, they're always working together. And they always have access to whatever information they want. So in a sense, I think the educational model that most universities in the 21st century are still using is simply not in line with the reality of society, which is collaborative and constant um, access to changing information. So I give my students access to information. They can use the Internet. I give students access to each other. They never take an exam alone. Yes, there has to be an individual, uh, an individual responsibility, but everything is in teams. And then the team evaluates how everybody has contributed to the team so that, you know, not everybody just gets the, the, like the co-evaluation. The team, the, yeah. Team evaluation. Right. Exactly. But, at least students have to learn how to work together and how to use information rather than putting the information in there. In their so you heads have to build a
0: their... test that you cannot Google. Exactly. Now, now think about it. Um, you know about
1: Bloom's taxonomy, with you know facts at the bottom and and then and understanding and then anal- analysis. Uh, no. uh... Uh, You know, transfer essentially to to another context, applying, and then analysis, evaluation, creativity, all the way at the top. Where we really want our students to be is at the top. Unfortunately, one of the problems, and, and this is a huge problem with assessment, is that at the bottom, you can evaluate things very objectively, right? In what year did Mexico become independent? In what year did World War II end uh, in Northern Europe? Uh, uh, You know, what is the color of the sky? Those are things you can say right or wrong, but they're all the way at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy. On the other hand, write a creative essay or build a a robot that does something would be much harder to evaluate because it opens up an opportunity for a student to express creativity, and people might not agree about what is creative. So, top of Bloom's taxonomy, very hard to assess, objectively. Bottom of Bloom's taxonomy, completely objectively. The way we've built our assessment at the university, we force ourselves to be very objective. Why? Because we are both the teacher, the coach, and the person who is the judge. The person who does the assessment. This doesn't happen anywhere else in society. Mm -hmm. It will be be considered illegal to have the coach be the judge,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? In academia, we get away with that. (laughs) Why? Because we force ourselves to the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy. Now, you said you have to build a test that you cannot Google, which means you eliminate the bottom category on Bloom's taxonomy. Why? Because Google is very good at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy and very poor at the top of Bloom's taxonomy. So I would say any question to which the answer can be Googled is not an authentic assessment question. I will agree with you. It's a hard sell, let me tell you.
0: It's a very hard. But, uh, if you can Google it, what was the use of memorizing that or whatever?
1: I totally agree. I totally agree, but you know, I would say if we were to collect the exams that are given this week all across the globe, I bet you, and and not just at the university level, K twelve, everything, right? We Google them all. I bet you that 99.9% of the assessment questions can be Googled. Yes. Which is, you know, sad because sad. 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 we are not preparing
0: our students for the future that they will face. If um, uh, I'm listening to you and I, I say, well, Eric has a point. I'm, I'm in. But... All my life, I have been learning this way, and I have been teaching this way. Where should I start? Because it's hard, and you to go from zero to one hundred. So, what what's the point to start and 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 convert my course? Yeah. Should I have to do it or, or everything at the same time or get some? Uh, I think that's
1: dangerous, right? I mean, change is difficult, changing everything at the same time. I didn't change everything at the same time. I just <laughs> described to you a process that took place over 35 years of teaching at uh, at uh, at Harvard. So, um, I mean, I would say I, I, I would probably start with moving away from lecturing to a method of engagement that is more active and you know to something that gets away from information transfer and more towards giving students an opportunity to have the aha moment in class so that would be step 1 and then uh, and then maybe uh, next start to think about changing assessment to match a more active learning strategy and eventually to move away from the traditional classroom, too, because think about it, most of the classrooms on this planet, mm-hmm. and I know that's not the case at the tech, um, at least for some of the classrooms that I saw here a number of years ago, um, but most of the classrooms are built like an auditorium. An auditorium where people turn into passive receivers of information mm-hmm. that's being disseminated by the person in front of the class. So all of a sudden, learning becomes like theater. Um, so I, I I I made a radical change five years ago. I decided I was going to build a new classroom. It was going to, It was an old library. It was flat. Uh, it's, uh, it's impossible to lecture in this space. And also I decided that I was going to completely change the approach because even though I'd done peer instruction, essentially what I told my students every year was, here's my textbook, learn it, it's good for you. Now, in my mind, as a physicist, learning physics is good, but imagine you're a pre-med or or an engineer, you have to take physics, you don't really want to take physics, when the professor tells you, learn this, it's good for you, or implies that, it's not going to sound very, very true, right? So, what I do now is I put the book aside, and I tell my students, we're going to work on projects, and... I try to add a component of empathy or social good to the project. And at first sight, the project has nothing to do with physics. And when the students are really excited about the project, because of this empathy or social good, I tell them, here, you may want to have a look at the book. It may help you with your project. So the content of the course, rather than being a... Goal in its own right becomes a vehicle, a means to accomplish a goal that's more meaningful in the minds of the students. So that completely changes the dynamic in the classroom. Because now, to some degree, the students take more ownership in the learning. They're looking at the textbook and learning the physics not because I tell them to do that. No, they're doing that because they want to improve their project. And... You know, I think that's, a, that's the third change that I would probably encourage people to take. But I don't see that happen overnight uh, everywhere. It's it going to be, there's a long road ahead.
0: And for those that are listening, it can be applied to other disciplines, not only physics. Oh, absolutely.
1: I think, I mean, it, the hard part is to think about how to package the project, how to package the content in the project. I struggled with that, uh, but I was limited simply by my own experience and imagination. And once I just let the creative juices flow, you know, I, I came up with lots of ideas and uh, but that takes time.
0: So I want to ask you a last question before, yeah. before, before we part. Uh, how do you want teaching learning to be in 10 years? What, what do you would like to see? Well, I'm afraid it's still going to look very much the same. (laughs) It
1: looks today. I mean, look at it. You know, we've been, we've been, uh, the university model has changed very little since what? Bologna, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, About a a thousand years ago. And unfortunately, this is the problem. You know, we, you, me, our listeners, our colleagues are all products of this system. Mm -hmm. And You know, we all kind of think, we learned it this way.
0: We were successful in that
1: model, so we can... We were successful in that model, so why would our students not be successful? I mean, what we don't realize is that, yes, we managed to succeed, but probably not so much because of that model, but in spite of it. And we became professors. We were extremely, highly intrinsically motivated to succeed, whereas most of our students are not going to become professors in our disciplines. They may be interested in a totally different discipline, but they have to take our discipline. So, so I think that's the flaw with the thinking of many of us, including certainly my, the flaw in my thinking uh, when I began teaching. Um, so what I hope, at least, is that messages such as the message that we've been discussing at least gets listened to more and that more people think, hmm, maybe I should be rethinking what I do in a classroom. In that respect, I think edX has done a really good job. I'm not a believer in edX at all. I don't, I think it does very little and it has done very little for education with one exception. People, faculty whose course is put on edX, suddenly start to think, after they've put their course on edX, what's my role now? What's my role in the classroom? So I hope that 10 years from now, more people will start asking themselves, more faculty, more instructors, more teachers will ask themselves, what is my role in the classroom? And maybe I should not just be lecturing and doing things that are easily available on the Internet and and elsewhere. That's my
0: hope for the future. I hope that we see that future come true. Me too, before I retire. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Eric, for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: For more information, visit... Observatory.tech.mx slash edutrends podcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer Esteban Venegas and Cristian Gijosa. Post production Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.